0: Amen. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us tonight as we continue our study through the book of Exodus. Um, As we're going to look into it today, you can feel free to turn there in your Bible or on your iPad or whatever you have. But before we jump into Exodus, I want to tell you what I believe is the most magical place on earth. And there's a giant corporation that has coined the most magical place on earth, but they're imposters. There's an even more magical place, an even more wonderful, fantastic place on earth. And it's a place in San Diego called the yogurt mill. Every time my family goes and visits my San Diego family, I make it a practice of going to the yogurt mill. And I'm not talking like we go one time in the week that we're there. I will daily go there. I will go at the end of every day. It doesn't matter how far away we were, I will go there because it is the best place in the whole world for yogurt. It's the most magical place on earth. It's a unique place too. It's, it's different than all of the other yogurt places. You could say, yeah, I've been to some yogurt places. It's okay there. No, this is a different tier. It's a unique place because the owners, they made it so that um, the local kids in their youth group would have a place to work. So it's, it's a it's a Christian-owned place with all these believers in there, and what they do, which is amazing, is you go in and you say, I want a child's cup, but they have some, some like underground lingo that you got to know, some low-key stuff where you say, I want a child's cup dropped. You got to know these code words because what they'll do is they'll fill the child's cup up, then they grab the largest cup that they have, and they will drop the child's cup in there and fill that to the top. It's amazing. It's amazing. It is the best quality frozen yogurt. It's the best quantity, but you got to know some other stuff too, like coupons. You can't uh, show them a coupon on your phone. You got to print it out and physically bring a paper coupon to them. And they only take cash. If you show up not knowing those things, you're going to be really disappointed. And there's another big deal there where when you come up to it, because I remember the first time I brought my wife there, I was telling her the whole way, oh my gosh, you're going to love this place. They have flavors that change daily. They have the most amazing and yogurt. It's the best in the whole world. And As we pull up, there's a line. And there's always a line. And this line seriously goes in front of all the other businesses in that plaza. And my wife is looking at it. She goes, I don't want to go there. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. She goes, but look at the line. We'll be there for half an hour. Like, I know. Because here's the thing about their line. Their line, while it's a deterrent to some people driving by, what you have to know about San Diego is it can be kind of a harsh place. You have a bunch of people that you've never seen before, people you don't know. You drive kind of aggressively, you know, like you, you don't mind cutting people off because there's a good chance you'll never see that human again in your life. But in the line at Yogurt Mill... You're not a bunch of people separated by class or by age. All of a sudden you're brothers and sisters excitedly heading towards a wonderful place with great yogurt. And I'm to explain this to my wife. We you got to sit in the line and we do it and we get through and it's brilliant. And you might wonder why are you telling me this? Because the next time I visit I want free yogurt. No, it's because I love you. And I love Yogurt Mill, and I'm passionate about it, I'm excited about it, it's it's compelling, it's it's my favorite place down there, and I want you to know about it. And I want you to go there when you're down there. It's very human and natural that when we have things that excite us, that that compel us, that interest us, we want everyone to know about it. We want everyone to share the experience that we had. And just like with that, you also want to let people know the possible deterrent, the thing that when they show up, they're going to go, oh, it's a line. I don't, I don't want to go in there. No, you have to, you have to understand the line. I understand how it looks from where you're at, but it's, it's so much more. It's worth being in. It's worth sitting through in that same way. We ought to be compelled to tell people about our relationship with Jesus. We ought to be people who are compelled to say, oh, you got to know my God. He's he's interesting to me. His word is challenging. It's inspiring. It's intriguing. You have to come and see all that is in it. But like those who drive by yogurt mill, there are people who look in and see Christianity and they see the Bible and they go, I don't want to do that. I mean, as you look at even how media portrays Christianity, my favorite illustration is, my name is Earl. You have the main character ends up having to go into a church in one of the episodes, and he's in this basement of the church, and Hollywood just made it so funny. And on one of the posters behind Earl, as he's talking, says, if it is fun, it's probably wrong. And that's how Christianity is portrayed. And that's what people believe, that the Bible is full of these divine rules— If you follow all of the rules correctly, you'll go to the good place. But if you have the wrong ideologies, if you don't follow all of the rules, if you don't do the right things, then there's a bad place for you. And that's how a lot of people understand what the Bible is. And we're entering into the first of the rules. We're gonna be looking at the 10 commandments tonight, 10 rules, 10 of the total of 613 laws and rules that God gives to his people. And if you have an understanding like a lot of the community does, a lot of the world does, like some of your neighbors and your coworkers, maybe even your family, if you have an understanding of the Bible as a bunch of rules, you're gonna miss out on the entire purpose of the book. You miss out on the grand story that it has because the rules make up a sliver of the entire Bible, but the entire Bible is so much more than that. The Bible is, instead of a big book of rules, it's a story where God redeems a people to himself and wants those people to live and flourish in a, a land that's made for them, where they can do well, where they can thrive, where they can live and walk and talk with their creator. And so as we jump into the 10 commandments, the story so far is not that God showed up in Egypt and said, okay, here are some rules. If you follow the rules, you'll end up at a body of water and that body of water will part for you, and you'll be able to move through, and then you'll head towards the inherited land. No. The story is God showed up. God delivered the Israelites out of the land of death, out of the grip of Pharaoh, and now that they're on the other side, God says, okay, now here is how you're going to live. They're saved, and now God says, okay, now here's how you're going to deal with one another. Here's how you're going to approach me. God rescued a people to himself. And now that he's rescued those people, he has decided he's going to turn them into a unique group of people, a unique group of priests that will mediate God's character, his justice, his wisdom, his generosity to all of the nations, all of the people around them. They're going to be a contrast community to all of the other nations, all of the other people groups in the world because they're God's people. They're set apart people. So they interact with each other differently. They have a different understanding of how the world works. They have a unique way in which they approach God. And so as we look at these 10 commandments and as you look at the rest of the laws and the rules that God will later put out, they can really boil down to two ways of approaching them. One of them you see in Deuteronomy 6.5. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And the other way is in Leviticus 19.18, which is love your neighbor as yourself. All of the commandments can boil down to love God and make him first above all of the relationships. And the second requires a loyal treatment and honoring of all other people, to love your neighbor as yourself, to do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, as Jesus would say. Jesus even says that all of the law and the prophets hinge on love God and love people. You get the two of those, you've got all of the laws and what God wants for his people. You have four vertical commandments and six horizontal commandments. So tonight, what we're going to look at is we're going to see That God's purpose in these Ten Commandments was not to create a system, but to create a people. A people that is different from the ways of the world. People that don't really fit in the world anymore. That people that are so unique in how they interact with each other, how they're generous with each other, how they love and support each other, that other communities are interested and compelled and want to know more about who they are. Not because of the things that they say, but because of the things that they do. So, with that, Let's look into Exodus chapter 20, the 10 commandments. And God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So, so far, so good, right? I mean, none of us is going out and worshiping other gods. I don't have an idol at home that I bow down to. Um, I don't have anything that I actively go and sacrifice to, hoping that it will give me prosperity and a better life, right? Well, we do. It just looks different. Where these people believe that if they sacrifice some things, it would rain, and then they have crops and more prosperity. We sacrifice in a different way, and we have gods that just show up in a different way. Like we will sacrifice time with our kids in order to further our careers, that we would have a more prosperous life, that we'd have a better thing set up. We have some of us, not all of us have no problem sacrificing our integrity to say stuff about a competitor in order that we get business and not them. We have these things that we will choose to be passionate about, excited about, interested in enough that we'd be willing to sacrifice our character, our integrity, or time spent with our kids in order that that thing might benefit me and give me flourishing, make me feel achieved, make me feel like I'm a success. Some of those things could be entertainment. We serve the God of entertainment where we always have to be consuming and I got to know what's next and I got to be in the loop with what's going on. Or social media, where all of a sudden social media, which can be a cool tool, all of a sudden becomes something that I need and my soul craves it. I need to get the likes. I need to get the retweets. I need to constantly be pushing out content so other people can affirm me and tell me how great I am. The most classic illustration, I think, of how something that is good can become a raging God in our lives would be like sports, where you have something that's good can kind of take over, where all of a sudden your identity is wrapped up in that sport, you, you uh, will decorate your car, and you'll wear the jersey, and it becomes who you are, and your team's victory, you're excited, and your team's defeat, you are angry, just irrationally mad, and you give all of your time, your money, your effort, your energy into supporting your team. You'd even do something as awful as wear a hat with your team's logo on it on stage while you worship the Lord. Awful stuff. <laughs> That's for Chris. But we all have these gods that we worship. So does that mean, as a believer, you can't watch sports? Absolutely. You may not watch sports. No. There's great things that we have in this world where we have community of people that we have common interests. We believe the same stuff, and we're excited to be with each other and celebrate together. It's when those things go into overdrive, where those things are now, those passions that we invest in, they're what give us satisfaction. They're what give us flourishing, instead of how we're designed to, in contact with our creator, in relationship with our God. It's when those things start to drive us instead of our relationship with the Lord. God says, have no other gods before me. That first, we have to have our lives ordered. We have to make sure that we have our priorities straight, that we get our satisfaction and we get our achievement, we get our success through God, that we see ourselves through the lens of the Lord, not through how other people view me or things people say online. It's all about how God views me, how God sees me what God has designed me for. Verse seven, the third commandment, you shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's in your gates. For in the six days, Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Years ago, Matt did a series through the book of Genesis And in that series, early on, he covered the Sabbath day, that it was interesting that God, he creates all of the world in six days, but on the seventh day, the Bible makes sure that we take note that he rests. And so was God exhausted? Was he just tired and he needed a day off because he had created everything in the world in six days? Well, our God in the beginning of the Bible is described as being so powerful, so big, that he's able to create all life and all the potential for all the human experiences that we've ever had by just using words, just speaking. It's effortless to our God to create. He's that big. He's that powerful. So no, he probably wasn't tired. Does our God just need sleep? Like our God's on a cycle where he is awake for six days in a row and then he sleeps for one 24-hour period. Probably not. I don't think so. What Matt said, which I think is absolutely true, is our God is modeling for you and I how we're supposed to live, how we're actually designed to live, that everything is really interesting. There's this article that was published in 2016 that I was looking at with Matt, and it goes through... fish and birds and livestock and domesticated horses and lab rodents and then even humans. And it looked at all of these elements of creation and said, look, there's an interesting biological rhythm that goes on where six days things will grow, six days things will increase, but then on the seventh day, they'll stop growing and they'll plateau that you can look at moss and moss will grow, 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 grow for six days. And then it's like it will freeze and that you have algae that'll bloom for six days. Then it will freeze. Even a toddler's cognitive growth will increase for six days. and Then for seventh days, it just seems like it plateaus. For me, it plateaued in high school. But what we see here is God is showing everything in creation has a cycle. And what was so funny about this article is that it said, um, the Hebrews tapped into this where they said they made a strong emphasis on you can work for six days, but on the seventh, be sure to rest. And the article was like, yeah, we don't know why the Hebrews said that. It's interesting that an ancient culture would mention this. And then they just kind of brushed it off. And it's like, maybe it's because the creator understands creation. I don't know, but probably because the creator understands creation and he knows how he made people. God tells us to set aside a day that it's good to work and it's good to increase, but there's a day where you are supposed to rest and it's actually really good for you. And this can be hard in America because we're a nation of go, go, go. And you always got to be getting the next achievement and you always got to be doing the next thing. But God says as his people, you're supposed to set aside a day where you don't strive in that area and you're not working that job, and you're not doing that thing, that there's a day of rest that's really healthy and good for you, and it follows the cycle that God has set in all of creation. It's good to set aside a day to rest. And so what God says to his people is, you need this. You will be a counter-cultural people if you do this. No one else in the world is doing it. Now the commandments, they move from vertical, our relationship to God and how we approach God, and and now they move horizontal, your relationship to people, how you're supposed to deal with people. And so commandment five, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that Yahweh, your God, is giving you. This is the kind of people that God wants. God wants people that honor their elders, that they work to build a community where old age is held in honor and it's regarded as good and that old people can grow in confidence and know that they're going to be able to expect to take joy in their community and that people will look at them and, and honor them and be excited about them being there. We have a culture where age is kind of despised, where old people are inconvenient And we put them away and youth is worshipped where everyone wants to be youthful and it's good to be young. And we do things to ourselves to make ourselves look younger, longer. It's the CEO of Google. He, a few years ago, declared war on death. He never wants to grow old. He never wants to die. He's got money and resources to try everything. So we'll see how it pans out for him. But we have a culture where old people become an inconvenience and it's easier to put them away than it is to take care of them. And our God says we honor human life, that we take regard in older people, that we view them and we say, there's someone to be honored. There's someone that should take joy in their community. There's someone you need to look out for support. And so what God says about his people is you will honor those who are weak. You will honor those who can't take care of themselves. You will take care of them. Whereas other cultures may be for it's the strong look after the strong might is right. God says you'll honor the old. Verse 13, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. I, I honestly, I laughed a few times when I was looking into this. I thought it was so funny because in the Hebrew, this you shall not murder, four words for us is actually just two Hebrew words. And if you were to literally take those two Hebrew words, it's just no killing. So you have God. Up there with Moses, he's giving all of the ways that you approach God, all these commandments. Now we're heading into the commandments of how you interact and deal with humans. And it just, my brain was just like, God looks at Moses who has murdered and just says, no killing. And Moses is like, shoot. Oh man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, this one's probably pretty easy, right? Like, no, Most of us, we get through the week and we go, oh man, I didn't murder anyone this week. Right on. I'm nailing this one. Good job. Well, here's what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't say, oh yeah, man, those who are not killing people, good job for you, man. Yes. Awesome. Jesus actually makes this law more intense. In Matthew 521, here's what Jesus does. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus looked at at his modern Pharisees. He looked at the people that they got their satisfaction. They got their, they believed that they were going to experience a good place, that they were going to, that they were following God's rules. So God must love them. And the more they followed rules, God loves them more than anyone else. And part of the rules they knew they followed real well is I didn't murder anyone. And Jesus says, yeah, actually that's not what it's about. And if you've been angry with your brother, that's just as bad. If you've called someone a fool, if you're yelling at people, calling them names, that's just as bad as if you murdered someone, because it's not about the rules. You're not God's people because you follow rules. That was the point Jesus was trying to make over and over and over again to the Pharisees. You're not God's people because you follow rules. You are God's people because your heart is tuned to him, that you look at people the way that God looks at people, that you value human life, whether it's old or it's young. And you say, this should flourish. This should live. I'll do whatever I can to support and fight for this person. It's a contrast to community where we recognize our place as like to be like Jesus, a servant of all, not only serving those who want what's best for us, but also serving those who actively want to hurt us like Jesus did a contrast community among the nations, people who are so different from anyone else in the world, a human community that lives by a different value system. And we'll look at the next four commandments. Verse 14 Commandment seven, you shall not commit adultery. Commandment eight, you shall not steal. Commandment nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And commandment 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. If you shall not, you shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. I was talking with Dick Worthington yesterday about the Ten Commandments, and what he said was really interesting to me. He said that idolatry and adultery are essentially the same thing. That if you have a spouse who uses all of their passion, all of their money, all of their attention, all of their excitement on someone else, doesn't that just crush? Isn't there just no worse wound than knowing that your spouse is with someone else. And for God, God wants to be our only God. God wants to be in relationship with us in a way that the Bible often describes himself as the groom and we are the bride. That that's our relationship to the Lord. And so he he just shared that interesting fact that idolatry and adultery in the Lord's eyes are like the same. God is putting laws down here which protect the community of his people. He's saying, don't take someone else's wife. Husbands, you are to have one wife. Don't steal from others that isn't yours. Don't lie about people or say things about them that aren't true. Be satisfied with all that God has given you and realize that all God has faithfully trusted you with, be faithful with it. Don't look at your neighbor and be frustrated and envious. It's not good for anyone. Look at the communities of the world. Look at how people fight and how they strive and they want more land and they want more stuff and they want more power. Don't be like that. Be satisfied with all that God has entrusted to you. Look at the communities of the world. You're supposed to be in contrast to them. Verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. You have a bit of a paradox here. You have Moses saying to the people, don't be afraid of God so that you can be afraid of God. He says, don't fear God. You need to fear God. It's funny. Verse 20, I think can be paraphrased like this. Don't be afraid. God is giving you a taste of himself so that his memory will stick with you and will keep you from sinning. The Bible over and over again will bring up this topic, the fear of the Lord, which can be really vague, can be really hard to understand. Like, how is God supposed to be approachable? Yeah, I'm supposed to fear him. And there's, the Bible always says there's a healthy fear of the Lord. And Matt, a few Sundays ago, brilliantly broke it down and he shared it through two Proverbs. He shared Proverbs eight thirteen: The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. We're God's people. We're supposed to be a counter, a a culture that's different, that's unique from the world where we're supposed to be fighting against injustice, that we hate injustice, we hate suffering, the degrading of humans, of children getting hurt, that God's people says, I'm not gonna stand for that. I will fight against that, that there's kids in our community that don't have parents that love and care for them. God's people are supposed to say, oh, I'm so against that. I'll do anything to stop that. I'll open up a room in my house to invite them in and to love them and care for them the way that God wants them to be loved and cared for and parented. In God's community, we're a contrast group of people that are adamantly against evil. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. We don't take it lightly. And then Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That fearing God is understanding God's place in the universe and our place in the universe. That God dictates how things work. He sets the boundaries. He understands that you need a day in the week to chill because you need it. He made you. God's community will be this way because he made us. This is what is right for human flourishing and leads to order. And then chapter 20 ends with laws about altars. And Yahweh said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness not be exposed on it. So there's some rules, some real basic rules. You have 10 rules that God lays out for his people. Do God's people follow those 10 rules? Not super well. In fact, what has become one of my favorite parts of the gospel of Matthew is how it opens with this genealogy where it lists out all of these people that are listed in the Bible, people that you should know as you've read through the Bible, as you're familiar with the Old Testament, and over and over again, the people that God has chosen to be in the line of Jesus are not people who did this. You have people like Judah Who has like the darkest chapter in Genesis? What I love especially is you got David. It says, David, who was the father of Solomon by the wife of Bathsheba, or by Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Like it throws in David, this king that we're excited about, did a good job. He's a man after God's own heart. Oh, what a great king he was. Yeah, but remember, he committed adultery and also he murdered some guy. Like over and over again in this genealogy, you have. Yeah, people can't follow the rules. People don't follow the rules well. People who are supposed to be a contrast community, they're broken. They've, they've literally missed the mark, which is how sin is translated, that God had an expectation for these people, a direction they were supposed to go, but they sin in people. And instead of following the rules, instead of doing the things that God had wanted his covenant people to be following, to be in relationship with him, they couldn't do it. And then Jesus shows up on the scene, but Jesus, he doesn't take away the rules or the expectation that God has for his people. Instead, Jesus actually amplifies them. He makes them stronger. He makes them harder. He says, if you think rules will save you, here's some more. You think murder is bad. We all can agree on that. What about anger? What about yelling words at people? If we have this idea, like a lot of people do, that the Bible is all about rules, what you'll find is you can't, you can't match up to the standard that God has set. You can't even match up to your own standards. The illustration that Matt always uses where if a man had a tape recorder around his neck and played it back at the end of his days, all the things someone should do, all the things someone shouldn't do, you can't even stand up to your own standard, let alone God's. So then what are people to do? God sets the standard for, okay, if you're going to be my people, these are the rules that you have to follow. You're to live countercultural to all the other people in the world. Well, I think what we have to remember is other people are going to look at Christianity from afar and they're going to look at the gospel. And a lot of it is that we have a misunderstanding of what the gospel is and what the Bible is as a whole, that the Bible is not a book of rules where if you follow all the right rules, you go to heaven. And if you don't follow the rules, you go to hell. Instead, this is how Jesus explains the story. This is how Jesus breaks it down, what the gospel is, what the whole story entails in the book of Mark. Mark opens, Mark 1 verse 1, like this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, great. So now we're going to get it, right? The gospel is right here. This is the beginning. Now we're going to see where the gospel goes and what it entails. So the next verse logically should be, here's how you avoid hell and here's how you get to heaven. But instead, here's verse two and three of Mark. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. That, that's not at all what I expected. Instead, God tells us, hey, Look back at Isaiah. There's a story that's happening that I'm continuing, a work that I started in Genesis that I'm still working through that there's something coming that really matters that's really going to change your life. It's not just going to change your future, not going to change where you go, going to change where you're at. And here's what Jesus says the gospel is in Mark 1:14 through 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, what's the gospel? Did I miss it? The gospel is the kingdom of God is here. By following the king and the kingdom, by following Jesus, by pledging our lives to him in the pursuit of the value system of his kingdom, by seeking righteousness, justice for the oppressed, honor and dignity for every human life, The gospel is the kingdom of God is here. Christians can never have the attitude of, look at how bad everything is. I can't wait for Jesus to come and fix it. The gospel is not saying nice things and just believing nice things and and internally receiving nice things. The gospel is the kingdom of God is here. And we have been called as priests and as ambassadors to a future inheritance, to a kingdom that is God's, that we're to be God's countercultural people. And it's not about just the things that you say and the things that you believe. It's the life that you live out. It's not just knowing the God's laws. It's actually living out the, the kingdom life that Jesus has for all of us as believers. And so here's my final thought. Exodus 20 ends after all of these laws with the altar because God's people will never be able to fully dedicate themselves and follow even those 10 rules. And then there will be a subsequent following 603 rules for a total of 613. Just rule after rule after rule that you'll follow to be God's countercultural people and they can't do it. They can't follow it. And so God tells them, here's how you're gonna make up for it. You will sin, you will miss the mark and when you sin, you'll take an animal and it will die because our God is not indifferent to sin. He's not indifferent to evil or to bad things, to chaos in the world. Our God takes it very seriously and says that the wages of sin, the wages of missing the mark that you should have for your life is death. And as we know, Jesus, he's described as the lamb of God, that Jesus is the sacrifice that died in our place, that his blood shows us that our God is serious about justice. Our God is serious about standing up for the oppressed, that our God does not take evil lightly. And as we look in a world where evil seems to be running rampant and there's chaos, we're called to be a people who are countercultural. We're called to be a people that cause others to see in us this excitement and this compelledness to share Jesus with people and let them know, hey, that thing that's keeping you from seeing the Lord, this idea that God is a cosmic killjoy who wants to keep you from joy and excitement and fulfillment, that's wrong. You have to come and meet my friend Jesus. You have to come and see him. But no one will want to see that if you're not living it. Saying something is great putting something on social media is whatever, but living out life like God has called you to as a contrast people, different from the rest of the world with a hope and a peace about you as everything else is falling apart because you know you have a God who sits on the throne, who sees you, who loves you, who has a plan and is working it even now. God has called you and me to be that contrast people today. The kingdom of God is here. There is a future hope. There is a future inheritance. But just like God called the, the Israelites out of death, he brought them to Sinai. Here's how you're to live. And then we're going to head to the promised land. You and me are in that in-between time. Here's how we're to live. We're to be a contrast people, showing people, not that there's rules to be followed, but we have our hearts tuned to Jesus who wants us to love and to care for the weak and the oppressed even today. So Jesus... We're so thankful that we serve a God who's not indifferent to suffering, a God who can take chaos and make order out of it. And I pray, God, that we wouldn't be people who would ever think that we could do anything to add to the gospel, that we have been saved by grace alone. But now that we've been saved, we have a calling on our life to be priests, to be ambassadors to a kingdom that is so much greater than anything this world could ever offer, that we're inheritors of a land where there is always justice and righteousness reigns. And Jesus, we pray today that we would be empowered to live the way that you've called us to live, to be the best neighbors on our street, to be people who have the best marriage in our community because we've been called to a higher standard because we've been saved and we serve the God over all of the earth who loves us so much he give his own son to have us. So Jesus, I pray today, We'd reorient our lives. We'd recognize the high calling that you've placed on us. And we'd step step up to the task. It's in your name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have an awesome week.